Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. Trial Tested is a discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Dave Paul, and I will be your host for today's episode. Good morning. I'm here today with Marie Hennen, who is a fellow of the American College. She graduated from Osgood Hall Law School and received her LLM from Columbia. She is a criminal defense lawyer in Canada, Ontario, Canada, and has done some very impressive work on behalf of a wide range of clients, including helping to develop the pro bono inmate appeals program, working actively with the Law Commission of Ontario. And she is the author of a book, which I have enjoyed reading, Nothing But the Truth, a memoir by Marie Hennen, which should now be available on Amazon. She's defended public and private figures, including Vice Admiral Mark Norman, former Ontario Attorney General, Daniel Wise, former radio host, and other folks. It really is my privilege. Marie, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks for having me, Dave. Well, I'm going to start at the beginning if I can, because where I really want to figure out is the background of you, which is really fascinating, coming from Lebanon and then Egypt and then Paris and then Ontario, which place that you have lived has most shaped you? It's interesting. I mean, the place I've lived most physically is Canada, and it has shaped me and my views and I think my expectations substantially. But at the same time, my history, which is in the Middle East, I was born in Cairo, although I only lived there for a brief period of time, equally shaped me. And I think you take your culture with you. I would say it's really the amalgamation of both of those experiences and cultures that have contributed both to shaping me and, quite frankly, contributed to the internal conflict sometimes in terms of finding your place. Let me ask you about that. When you say the internal conflict of finding your place, what do you mean? Well, I think that in North America, both in Canada and the United States, which are both countries that are made up of people who have come here, nobody has, uh, other than the indigenous community, nobody is any more American or Canadian than the other. When you're obviously or visibly not from here because you look different, because you speak a different language, because you eat different food, whatever it is, there is a dissonance and a sense that you don't belong. You feel a little bit like an outsider. And that is part of you. I mean, that lives with you throughout your life, trying to reconcile that and trying to take your place in this society. So it's a very different experience for people of different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different skin colors, where you are identifiable as having some other aspect to you. And so that's the reconciliation that you have to go through internally and externally. It's interesting to you know talk to you after reading the book, because what I'm trying to figure out is I sense this restlessness that is almost part of your DNA. Am I catching that correctly? Oh, it's absolutely correct. It is very much a part of who I am. And, you know, a thing candidly that I've tried to figure out, particularly in our wellness culture, where we're all about being still and being, you know, present and being sort of in the place that you are, which is the antithesis of everything that's natural to me. I'm a restless person. I'm not interested in where I am. I'm interested in where I'm going. I don't care about, you know, the where I've been or where I am. I'm sort of always looking for the next thing. I think that's why I find criminal law so fascinating because it's constantly changing. It's not a static type of job. There's this quote in your book that I thought was really fascinating. Uh, I'm going to read it. It was, discomfort is a home of sorts to me. The truth is that I feel most acutely when I have pushed into some state of discomfort. Explain that a little bit. What that is, I think, trying to explain is that for me, for my makeup, when things are sort of going along routinely in the same way as they did the day before, when it feels too easy 
I don't feel good about it. I don't feel settled. That sense of repetitiveness or familiarity does not settle me. And for me to begin to feel sort of more intensely and to feel, quite frankly, more at home, I have to be in circumstances or doing things which put me on my heels a little bit, which challenge me, which don't give me a sense of familiarity. That to me is where I feel most comfortable, where I feel most energized. So I don't like repetitiveness. I don't like that sense of, okay, I've got this now. If I've got it, then I'm moving on from it. I want to know what I don't have, what I can't do, and I want to try to do it. So what's currently making you uncomfortable? (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. My practice for three decades has been predominantly criminal defense work and regulatory work, and I've been spending the last few years doing quite a bit of civil litigation. So that's a forum and an environment that you're not as comfortable in naturally. It's not as routine for you or rote. And so every time you're doing those cases, you're educating yourself and there's a challenge and a newness to it. So, you know, that's been very interesting. Writing has been part of it for sure. You know, it's a new way of expressing yourself and it was definitely a challenge. And I found that fascinating. So, you know, I'm always looking for something that is going to take me off the sort of typical path. I want to flip gears a little bit and talk to you about what I found to be one of the most interesting distinctions of the Canadian legal system compared to the one in which I practice in as a trial lawyer in Florida. And it's the articling process, which I was absolutely just captivated by. But for those of us that are not familiar with it, can you explain that process? Sure. Articling in Ontario, and there are provinces that have done away with it, is the one year after you graduate from law school where you're effectively apprenticing. You don't have the status of a lawyer. In other words, you cannot try cases generally. You certainly can't try cases at certain levels of court. And you're working for a principal who basically trains you, who apprentices you. And it's one year. It's generally a grueling year. Certainly mine was where you're learning how to be a lawyer. And it's a pretty important year. Yes. And you articled with Eddie Greenspan, who at the time was the most prominent criminal lawyer in Canada. Looking back on articling when you did it, and also experiencing people that come to you articling, what is the real value of that one-year apprenticeship? It sounds almost like a residency or a fellowship for a doctor. Well, I think law school does not prepare you for being a real lawyer. I really don't think it trains you to interact and be prepared for the challenges of dealing with clients, of court, of judges, of all of it. It trains you, I think, in a very particular way. It trains you to think critically, to solve problems, because lawyers are ultimately problem solvers, both on a large and small scale. So it prepares you for that, but it provides no practical preparation. And I know law schools try to give you mooting experience or trial advocacy experience, but honestly, it, as you know, it pales in comparison to facing down a real witness or dealing with a judge or a prosecutor. Life is very, very different when you're practicing. So that one year is the very first introduction where you're not working on cadavers, you're working on live people now. And so it is, like you say, it's that residency that changes so many things and is a fundamental learning year. And it's the beginning. And I just remember how quickly, because you know, you're pretty full of yourself by the time you graduate from law school. You're at the top of your academic experience. You've completed it. You're a professional now. And you think you know everything. And it takes about you know two minutes with a real live lawyer to realize you actually know absolutely nothing. And the amazing thing is you're being handed the well-being, the lives of people who are coming to you for everything that up to this point has been academic. And the burden is really significant. It was very deeply felt for me. And I realized very quickly that I knew very little about the actual practice of law. It seems to me when I think of the system in the U.S., it's just almost feels dangerous to take a brand new law student. They pass the bar, they can hang a shingle. They've never even done a client interview and 
they can handle anything from a tax situation to a criminal case to a antitrust, whatever the case is. And that's the appeal as I look at the articling is it actually truly does serve as almost a, a check and balance before we put someone out there. But the other piece I was struck from your book was the lessons in humility that come out of articling. It's not even about getting knocked down a peg. You know, it's not that sort of machismo. It's not any of that. It is really beginning to learn that being a lawyer, and I'm sure it's the same with you, is that you find that as lawyers get older and more experienced, they tend to check themselves more. They tend to consult with each other more. They're not as reactive. You tend to really think through every move and you tend to welcome consultation with colleagues that you respect because you know that every single thing that you do has such a profound effect on the way a case is shaped and the way that you litigate it. But wow, is that a lesson that you learn after you've been at it for a while? Because you come into it with all the bravado in the world thinking you know everything. And it's really surprising to me. And a thing I always say to young lawyers that what you will be struck by is the most senior lawyers, the most revered lawyers are the ones that really always check themselves, always consult, don't always assume that they know the answer. They decide it ultimately, but they do it in a very deliberate way. So I think that deliberateness that makes the best of the best in litigation is something that you learn. And you start. I started learning it certainly in my first year when I was articling. Let's talk about Eddie Greenspan. It feels like it's hard to talk about Marie Hennon without talking about the impact that Eddie Greenspan had on you. He was also a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers. What impact did Eddie Greenspan make on you? He had an extraordinary impact. You have to know that the reason I wanted to work there is that in my mind, he was the ultimate archetype of what a defense lawyer should be. And that didn't disappoint me. It's not like I went there and stayed for 11 years and was somehow disillusioned or surprised. He was as advertised. He was exactly what I thought a defense lawyer should be. And he taught me a great deal But most importantly, perhaps, was that he was unwavering in his commitment to his client. Didn't matter what was going on around. It didn't matter what people thought. That when he was in a courtroom, his loyalty and his obligation was to his client. And that was one of the most fundamental lessons. But probably the second most critical lesson is that he valued his work and his contribution in the justice system. He didn't buy into the lawyer jokes. He viewed himself with the respect that he should view himself. And he viewed what we do as a profession as being something that is laudable, that is valued, that is a significant and necessary contribution to democratic values and upholding democratic society. And so those two things, which were very fundamental, were critical. It's how I saw him. It's how I saw myself. It's the way I thought of our profession. And those are lessons I always go back to. I'm reading his book as well. And it seems to me like Eddie Greenspan was, in my view, a little bit of an old school mentor. And by that, I mean, it sounds like he wasn't afraid to ask you to do anything, meaning he ask you to do things that I don't know that in today's climate, when I think of lawyers that I work with that are younger lawyers, I don't see me asking them to, you know, make copies when I have a legal assistant around or run errands for me. But it sounds like he was not afraid at all if you were working with Eddie Greenspan to ask you to do anything. Am I picking that up right? Oh, you're absolutely picking that up right. And it was very old school apprenticeship in the sense that you as the apprentice were grateful to be there and did whatever you were asked to do, whether it was to drive him somewhere or to do photocopies or to get a car washed. It was all of it. And you're absolutely right, Dave. I mean, you can't do that nowadays. And I think that, you know, there is a lot to be said for the way we approach our obligations as mentors nowadays. Now, that having been said, I do think there is one lesson to take away from it. And that is that, you know, in my office, I will photocopy. I don't care. I will bind. I will do it all if I have to get it done. And 
I think in our profession, there is no room to be a prima donna when you are trying to do whatever you have to do for the client. And so I think that ethos, that attitude, which is you got to roll your sleeves up, you got to get down and dirty, you got to do it all, you're not above doing any of it. That attitude, I think, is an important attitude. And I wonder whether we've lost a little bit of that, that we're in a service industry. We're in an industry which, in a profession that requires us to have all hands on deck and do what we need to do to get to the place we need to bring our clients to. That I think we can do a bit more of. It really is a fine balance. It's on the one hand, you don't want to mentor prima donnas. On the other hand, the methodology that worked in the 80s is not the same methodology that would be acceptable today. What other than leading by example, is there anything else you do to help cultivate an environment where prima donnas are not welcome? Yeah. I mean, it's one of the very first conversations that you have if you interview at our office. And that is, certainly with me, that it is team-oriented, that you are not going to leave the office and leave your colleagues sitting there on their own working away, that you don't leave before you ask if someone needs help. That's across the board. That there is no one who is better than the other and that your obligation is to promote your colleagues as much as yourself that there is a lot of room at the top. Someone's failure does not ensure your success. And there's a lot of room for people to be great. And your job is to elevate your colleagues and to help them along. Let's talk about mentees, young lawyers that may have the opportunity to listen to this. If you were to give them advice or counsel in how to be a good mentee, What are the things that good mentees do to make them desirable to invest in? For me, the two key qualities of a great mentee are people who are interested, who have an energy about the case. And you know, as well as I do, Dave, not every case is equally exciting. And so sometimes you're doing stuff, but you got to get yourself up for it. You got to bring yourself up. You got to get interested and excited about it because your lack of energy is red. You know, if you're bored by what you're doing and saying, then why would you expect anyone listening to you to be remotely interested? If you're not convinced by what you're saying, why would anyone, you know, listen to you or be persuaded? So you can't be blase about it. You got to have an energy. And sometimes that takes, you know, that we dig deep, right? To get energetic about something that we would never be interested in if it was our choice. So energy is really important. And the second thing is, That when you are a mentee, when you are sitting second chair, for example, you have to view yourself as lead counsel. In other words, you're not just a conduit that is supposed to sit passively waiting for me to ask you for something. You got to come up with ideas. You've got to be there step by step with me litigating it. As I tell the young lawyers, if I get sick tomorrow, you got to be ready to step in. And that's how you approach every single case as second chair or as a mentee. you got to take ownership of the case and not think you're going to be constantly shielded by senior counsel because the day will come, as we all know, where you're the senior counsel. So you should take no comfort in that. You should step up and you should assume responsibility. So that's really what I'm looking for when I'm dealing with mentees and junior lawyers. Something interesting I learned in preparing to talk to you, I talked to your partner, Danielle Robitaille, and also one of your other lawyers, and they told me a story about you giving very direct and honest feedback. And the story involved a lawyer who was being placed in a situation they were afraid of and going to be doing something they were worried they were going to screw up. And they asked you the question, what if I do this wrong? Are you going to be mad at me? Right. And your response was not a coddling response. It was, yes, I will. Now go do it. It seems like when I talk to people that have worked with you and no one says anything negative, but you don't appear to me to be someone who's afraid to give direct and honest feedback to the people you work with. No, and I'm, I'm not. I think the thing that we tend to forget is that we are professionals. You know, it would be like a doctor or a surgeon saying to you, look, if I kill the patient, are you going to be mad at me? 
well, sure, I am going to be mad at you because you're the one holding the scalpel. You're the one with the responsibility. It's your job. So why they would care about whether I'm mad at them or not, sort of the wrong question, right? The question is, first of all, you should be mad at yourself if you mess up. And you should take no comfort in anyone giving you a pass. I'm sure you feel this way too, Dave. I mean, I bet you you can give me chapter and verse of any loss that you've had. And it will oh, live with gosh. I could write books on every loss I had. Exactly. I mean, I can't remember the details of the wins, but boy, can I remember the losses. And, you know, I can think of numerous examples where, you know, in one case, after I had completed the cross-examination, I had cut out a line across a theme sort of on the fly. And I completed the cross and we came back to the office and we sat there for three hours reviewing the cross because I needed to satisfy myself that it was the right call. There was nothing I could do about it at that point. But the reality is you have someone's future, their livelihood, their family, all of it in your hands. So, you know, when a lawyer comes and says to me, well, if I mess up, are you going to be mad at me? Well, sure, I'm going to be mad at you. I'm not going to applaud you. And you should be mad at yourself because you just impacted very significantly potentially someone's life. So, no, it's not a job that you go easy on yourself. I certainly don't go easy on myself and I'm not going to go easy on those around me. That having been said, we all mess up, right? We all mess up. We all make mistakes, but they should live with you because you're supposed to learn from them. And the one thing young lawyers need to understand is that you matter. Your conduct and your decisions matter to a client. You're having an impact on somebody's life. So no, I'm not going to give you a pass if you mess up. No. So I know you're highly successful, but I also know we do learn way more in our losses than we do in our wins. And so what I'd like to do is find out what is the biggest mistake, screw up, you've made and how did you walk through it? Oh my gosh. I mean, there are a number. I mean, I can think of one, which was an appeal case, actually. It was a murder case where a young man who was quite incredible, had overcome so much, a very abusive background, a very abusive family, and had just gotten through it, got a scholarship, a sports scholarship, and then ultimately kills his profoundly abusive stepfather who was threatening to kill his mother. And so I acted on appeal and tried to overturn his murder conviction and was unsuccessful. And I go back to that and think, was there a different way to pitch that argument? Was there a different way or a different approach to take to that? You know, it's something that I continually go over, you know, trying to figure out how you could have brought it closer to, for example, battered spouse syndrome and to connect it to that. So, I mean, that's one example I think there's an overarching thing that I personally have to guard against. And, you know, everyone has a particular disposition, right? When I came to this and I write about it, I I didn't love facts. I was a lover of the law. And you cannot be a trial lawyer without loving facts. It, in fact, is all about the facts often. But I thought, you know, the facts were really an interfering byproduct. And it was all about the law. That was what I was here to do. So It was very easy for me to dismiss facts or dismiss a version of events or not investigate everything thoroughly. And it took quite a bit of training, largely appellate, honestly, because I spent so much time taking apart forensically trials and reading transcript after transcript after transcript. And you know that when you argue at an appellate level, actually the facts are everything, notwithstanding you're arguing legal principles. It's all about what happened, what was said, who asked the question, how it was phrased. It determines so much. And so that taught me to love the facts and to overcome my natural inclination to sort of set them aside. And so I would say the biggest mistake is early on not focusing enough on the facts, not hunting things down. And, you know, you're part lawyer, part investigator. That's part of the job is putting a case together, especially as a defense lawyer, when you don't have a police force doing it for you. So, I mean, those are a number of mistakes, but I think we need about several hours to go through all of them. (laughs) Well, I I often find whenever someone tells me when I'm self-aware that I've made a horrible mistake, they say, just let it go. I always think it's just empty and shallow. I wish life were that simple, but I've rarely found a trial lawyer who's not part sociopath 
that is able to just let it go. I find those stir around in me decades later. The best part for you, the most enjoyable part of the practice of law is what? Being in court. Being in court. I love litigation. It's the most challenging. I think trial litigation in particular, you know, appellate litigation, which is fascinating because you're being challenged by people who know the law and can intellectually push you, which is, it can be a lot of fun, particularly at the Supreme Court level when you've got nine, it can be very interesting and challenging. But I don't think anything beats the lack of control you have in a trial courtroom. And the whole art of it is maintaining control and establishing control. But It is unpredictable. There's no question about it. I I hate that. I hate that lack of control. But that's what, you know, great trial lawyers develop control, right? You control your space and your courtroom and your presence and all of it. But there's always that bit, right? There's always that piece that you may not expect or you cannot predict. There's a dynamic that, you know, you can't guard against. But that keeps you on your toes, I think. And it makes it incredibly exciting for me. Speaking of exciting parts of the trial, you are known as a vigorous, detail-oriented cross-examiner. And one thing I'm finding as I'm talking to members of the college is usually, at least for me, their strong suits, whether it's Rusty Harden or Bob Fisk, is cross, that that is where they are most coming alive I have heard you have spent a lot of time and energy developing your own process of preparing for cross. Right, right. I have. You know, I think everyone approaches it differently. And part of it is governed here that in Canada, we have a lot of disclosure, pretrial discovery. So, you know, you do come into it with generally a good sense of what you're going to be facing. And that gives you a bit of runway. But my process is pretty forensic. It is developing chapters in the life of a cross-examination. But the starting point for me is always, what am I trying to achieve with this witness? And who do I think this witness is? You know, for most of us, the first time you're meeting this person is when you're standing up in a courtroom. And so, look, we're all very different things. But as a cross-examiner, you have to figure out who it is that you think is in front of you. And part of the cross is often to get that person to emerge. You know, people seem to be one thing in examination in chief and very different in cross-examination. And who that person is, is often very fundamental to what your theory of the case is. So any cross-examination, I think, starts with a theory of the case, obviously, and a theory of that witness, which is really important. We can spend days sort of talking about what we think the backstory of that witness is. That really governs how you're going to conduct your cross-examination on lines that you'll toss and lines that you'll follow because it's you've got to have a consistency in your approach. I then define chapters of the cross and it's laid out physically in folders of exactly where I'm going to go in the cross. And then, you know, when it's a visual and you walk through it, you can adjust it because cross-examination, which is viewed as being a great tool, as you know, is pretty limited. It's very little that we're given to work with. So it's all about the order of the questions, the way you phrase the questions, the tone of the questions, and where you put a certain line of questioning. That's all you have control over. And you're supposed to use those tools to bring out your narrative. So it's very forensic. It's pretty detailed work. You know, it's not unusual for a three-hour cross that I've put in a substantial amount of upfront work in it. So I don't do it impromptu. I've heard that you do a collaborative process in prepping for big cross-examinations. Tell us about that. Well, often I will have members of our office or our team, including my whoever's my co-counsel, you know, Danielle's done a lot of this with me, uh, walk through. We sort of mark the cross and you run through the chapters to see how they're impacting. Because often, I mean, you know this, when you're so in a trial, you begin to drink your own Kool-Aid, and that's the last thing you ever want to do. So you want people to say, well, I don't understand the point of that. What's the point of that theory? And to have that pushback, you know, I often use, for example, my husband, who's a lawyer, because he's got a very different temperament than I do, to run through some of this stuff so that he can be the, you know, the 13th juror and to say to me, well, I don't find that compelling. 
So that's how we work through it, because you've got to make sure you're landing your points. And sometimes what you think is landing really isn't hitting the mark. So we work it through. We work it through in our office and we workshop crosses for quite some time. Tell me about the whiteboard and your use of a whiteboard and pictures or documents to prep for cross. Well, we do have one or many whiteboards sometimes where we map it out. You know, you're mapping out where you're beginning, where your sort of crescendo is in a cross, where it ends. You know, you're marking on the whiteboard and you're adjusting, right? You're switching it. You know, the other thing I think people forget is that when you're doing a cross, a cross-examination is not of one witness, right? You use other witnesses to cross-examine a witness, and it's all a piece of one overarching narrative. So you've got to intersect all the witnesses together and all their different versions of events. So we do use a whiteboard to mark the cross, to mark our themes and our chapters, and it's a constant uh, work in progress. And when the whiteboard is wiped, that's when we're done. The fear I have when I think of that collaborative process is it's who do I include in? It's the fear that I have somebody that is going to negatively critique me that doesn't have the whole story. How do you process through who you let to give you input? And do you allow even random people you know, in the office to give you feedback and then just filter how much value do I put in that or not? I'm judicious in terms of internally and externally when I, you know, consult with other lawyers. They are lawyers that I have such high respect for and whose opinion I want to hear. I may not agree with it. You know, I used to reach out to Eddie all the time and I wanted to hear what he had to say. Sometimes I would take the advice, sometimes I didn't. But, you know, the process of going back and forth is extremely, extremely helpful for a trial lawyer. The one thing I'd say also, Dave, is that when it comes to the media, it's the same thing. You know, the media always has a particular perspective, but I'm sure it's the same for you that sometimes there are certain writers who really give you a sense of the pulse of what's going on, what's landing. And there are others that, it, you know, it's, it's just not going to inform you. So you're always judicious in what you take in and what you place value on. You mentioned the media, and I'll go there. When you were defending a high-profile case in Canada, you were all over the media. I mean, left and right, everything from personal attacks to critiques of your shoes to your hairstyle to you name it, it came at you. How did you keep from taking all of that on? You know, the thing about being a trial lawyer is as much as it is about you, because you're there, you're the person standing up, you're sort of a surrogate to a certain extent for your client and the public eye. It's not about you, really. At the end of the day, we do not go to prison and we are not the ones charged and we do not get acquitted. So you always have to remember that it's about your client and that that's the only thing that ever matters is your client. You have to check your personal feelings. And so I was able to do that. I checked myself and said, this isn't about me, number one. Number two, I'm very comfortable and confident in who I am. So I could care less if somebody sitting at their home tweeting something nasty about me does that. They're irrelevant to me. You know, we were just talking about this. People whose opinion matters to you, obviously you listen to. People whose opinion doesn't, which is much of Twitter, you ignore. So I didn't really care. There really was no day that I would judge myself or what I do or my values by the opinion of someone who has no clue who I am or what my profession is about. I'm pretty comfortable with our job. I'm more than comfortable. I'm proud of what we do. It didn't matter to me. I'm not doing this job to be liked. It's interesting because you seem incredibly confident in your own skin and you also seem to have some level of insecurity of who you are. If that makes sense, what I'm trying to say, it's you know who you are and you're constantly trying to figure out who am I. That's very true. I mean, that was part of the process of the book. You know, I think as a woman in particular, when you're in a public position, the sorts of comments that you're subjected to are profoundly gendered. And it's very easy to buy into it or to second guess yourself. I mean, that's the point of these sorts of comments and attacks and, you know, fixations on what my hair looks like or what I'm wearing. You know, they're not doing it because it's Vogue and Anna Wintour commenting on my style. It's because they're trying to send a message, right? They're trying to say something about you personally as a professional. So you always 
have to be very confident about who you are and understand what this sort of public commentary about women in public positions really is and filter that. On a personal level, you're absolutely right. And for me, the book was much of trying to reconcile, I think, conflicting parts of myself and my culture, where you've got you know one foot in one culture and another foot in another, and trying to find a sense of not being an outsider. I think I was surprised, I got to tell you, because it wasn't what I thought would come out, how much of that really continues to resonate with me and how much of it has impacted. You know, we are in a profession that is as striated as our culture, right? There's a lock on certain things and it's a lock by a lot of, you know, white males. And so trying to feel part of the club when you've never been invited in, it's something that obviously has impacted me more than I had anticipated. And so that I think is what you're seeing is that trying to get comfortable with that. Yeah, it seems like, you know, when I look at your mom and how she has shaped you, I love this quote, not once did she tell me to be sweeter, more feminine, less aggressive, or to stand down in any way. And I think of how powerful that message would be to, frankly, anybody, male or female. But in particular, when I look at the diversity of your background, it's clear that that had such a shaping of you. I couldn't decide who was my hero in the book. Is it the grandmother? Is it your brother? Is it your mom? Is it Eddie? Is it your husband? Is it you? I really found bits and pieces of heroes throughout that. But I did find this, you were talking about the gender issues. I want to press into that. I'm candidly scared to do so, <laughs> but I'm going to. One of the things you talked about in the book was this kind of notion that people want to ask you about how women lawyers can have more work-life balance. And you made this comment, I will gladly speak to a room full of men on how they can adjust their work-life balance to accommodate female workloads and success. I haven't been invited to one yet. Well, Marie, you are invited. (laughs) You are invited. So what advice, counsel, or guidance would you give to leaders in the law profession in how they can adjust their law firms, their mentorship, and their leadership to accommodate, develop, grow, help thrive female lawyers? Well, you know, I'm a big fan, as are many people, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, former Justice Ginsburg. And I remember her saying, you know, one of her famous quotes is, you just need people to take their foot off our necks. I really believe that when you look at women who have been successful, what they have been given, certainly what I was given, is an unobstructed runway. I mean, look, we have obstructions. Every human being does. You have challenges, but we don't have to add to it unnecessarily. And so what the legal profession can do, first of all, is to give women opportunities to succeed, to allow us access into that room, to give us a seat at the table when you're talking about clients, to introduce women, to give them the lead chair, to provide those opportunities and chances for women to elevate their profile. I think that's number one. Number two, I think everybody should keep their nose out of our private life. I am so tired of people in the legal profession thinking that the only thing we ever have to talk about is how we're going to deal with maternity leave, as though it is a shock to this profession that's existed for centuries that women can have children, and that it is some sort of anomaly that requires all sorts of accommodations, as though it's a disability, effectively. It's stunning to me. You know, in my office, many of my partners are women. There are women that have children, women that do not. You know, Danielle has twins. Nobody, no firm, our firm has not collapsed. And it was not a big topic of conversation when they chose to have children. It was really a private decision. They told us when they're leaving and they told us when they're coming back. And we managed everything else in between. So when you deal with women and you place such an enormous pressure on them as to how are you going to do it? How are you going to be a mom and how are you going to be a lawyer? As though they're mutually exclusive concepts, a thing that no male lawyer has ever asked themselves. Can I be a dad and can I be a lawyer? 
it is untenable. It's unbearable for many young women because they come into the profession with obstacles having been thrown in their way. You know, I think they need breathing room. I think they need to be promoted. And yes, I do believe our male colleagues might want to consider stepping up a little bit and picking up some of the load that allows women to do what they need to do to get the success that men have enjoyed for centuries. Again, I go back to Justice Ginsburg. You know, she had a runway and her husband allowed her the opportunity to do what she needed to do. He let her do it. He didn't throw obstacles. And, you know, I think women who are successful, their partners tend to get out of their way and to hold down the fort and to do the things that, you know, men have enjoyed for literally centuries. And I think women are reluctant to ask for those things. I think the profession is very reluctant to try to offer them. And I think all we do is we do and ask the wrong questions and those questions force women out of the profession. So I don't know. Are you sorry that you asked me? Not one iota. I have some incredible lawyers that I have the privilege of working with. And one is out on maternity leave right now. And I sent her your chapter on this before she went out. And I'll tell you this, this is what I believe the truth to be. The words you said, which resonate with me is it requires leaders of law firms to step up. If you're going to have someone who is going to take maternity leave, somebody's going to have to step up. That, By the way, that doesn't matter if it's a man or a female, but either way, in particular, someone's going to have to step up. It's not easy. It takes work. It takes commitment. But the end result is worth it. And so I want to follow up. You said you got to focus on the questions you're asking, you know, rather than how do you be a good mom and a good lawyer, for example, what are some questions that will say for me that you would challenge me to be asking? What can I do to promote you? What are your goals for your career? How can I introduce you to clients? How can I give you more opportunities to litigate? Where do you see yourself in five years or 10 years? And how can I assist you in getting there? I want you to make this part of the argument in a case that you're on with me. I want you to be up front and center. I think all those sorts of questions are so essential because, you know, when they did a study here in Canada about why women were leaving the profession, it's this exodus that exists in the States as well. It's not because women were having kids. It's because they found the profession unsatisfying. That was a significant contribution because you know what the truth is? Dave, nobody leaves a job that they're validated in, that they're successful in, that they feel good about doing. They don't. They want to fight to stay in. But if you're not validated, if you're not feeling successful, if you don't see yourself having a future, if you don't see yourself as being a leader, then sure, it's irrelevant to you. It doesn't have meaning or it's just full of frustration for you. And so, you know, I think as a profession, as a country, as a world, we lose so much because you get 50% of the population, 50% of the talent being sidelined or dissuaded. And we are losers as a result of it. And I think we have to do a much better job of developing our talent and developing the talent of women. And I don't certainly ask anybody who's a female who comes to my office, you know, are you going to have a kid and how many are you planning for? I could care less. It's none of my business. I want to know what kind of lawyer you're going to be. I want to know how you see your career. I want to know what you think your contribution is. And I know you can handle the rest. I know you can. Women are, are very strong and resilient and we can figure it out. I mean, men have. I think we can do it as well. Wonderful. I really appreciate it. And, you know, my belief is that the college, the American College, has a long way to go, like every other institution, but we are excited to be a part of the solution. And so I appreciate your candid critique and also some constructive questions, which are good questions that I personally want to be asking. I want to stay a little bit on the question of lawyers and talent. When I look at your law firm, you have, I think, 19 lawyers. They seem like an incredibly gifted group of men and women. If you were to give some advice on how you keep and retain talent, what advice would you give? 
you know, we are talking about the mass resignation, you know, post-pandemic. We're seeing it in the legal field in the States and in Canada. You are seeing law firms do everything they can to improve their retention from adjusting their expectations of physical presence to adjusting their expectations of hours. So what we did, and it's a really a work in progress, and I have to tell you, I will give most of the credit to my junior partners like Danielle Robitaille, who's really spent quite a bit of time focusing on this. We hired an expert who is a director of professionalism and talent in the office. And this person who's a lawyer, her job is all day, every day, all week, to focus on the lawyers, the associates in our office in terms of developing them professionally, but also emotional well-being, wellness incentives, all sorts of things like that. So that there's a dedicated person that has their pulse on A, what the associates need, but also what we need to be doing better. So, you know, I don't have a perfect answer. I certainly think the old school approach just is a non-starter. It is a seller's market, not a buyer's market now with talent. And so I think younger lawyers are looking for different things and different types of satisfaction and work environment. And so you got to meet it because otherwise you're going to lose the talent. Slightly off topic, but I meant to circle back. I have this vision of Eddie Greenspan. I don't know if it's accurate or not, but I am reading his book and I've seen him through your eyes and you see him as this, you know, when you're coming up a larger than life, kind of an icon in the profession that you feel called to. And he's asking you to do everything. Okay. But he's asking everybody to do everything. Was that hard? No, I could care less. Like it didn't impact me. I was just so thrilled. You have to know, Dave, I was just so thrilled to be there. You know, my mom will tell you that when I was there within two weeks, I called her and I said, this is the place where I'm supposed to be. I love it that much. So, you know, I missed a gazillion things. I didn't care what I was being asked to do because I was watching up close and personal what Eddie was doing, what Mark Rosenberg was doing. I was learning everything I could want to learn. I was able to see him cross-examine and then ask him questions about it. I mean, that was such a gift to be able to say, what were you thinking when you asked that question? Why did you go in that direction? You know, when you were met with this answer, how did you deal with this witness? How did you know to do that? You know, with Mark, I would sit there and ask him, how do you prepare for the appeal? Let me see your notes. I want to understand how you're putting this together. So I had all of this access just by virtue of being there. So did I care that I was photocopying? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I could care less. I was so grateful to be there. That's great. We have some questions that we're asking every person we talk to. One of them is about when you felt most powerful and when you felt most powerless. Wow. When have I felt most powerful? Well, I probably feel most powerful in a courtroom because you're in control as much as you can be. That's probably, for me, the pinnacle. I, I don't think of it as a day-to-day -day thing. And when I feel most powerless is, you know, in personal circumstances, I think, you know, as a friend of mine says, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. You know, all those sorts of challenges that we all have are the moments where you feel most powerless. I always say this to my friends is that we're in a business where you control and you problem solve. And you know where you have the least control and least ability to problem solve is often in your private life where you're not the lawyer. You know, as my kids always say, you know, mom, you're not in a courtroom. And that is so hard. And that's when you feel, I think, most powerless because you're, to a certain extent, out of your element. Yes. If you were to give some advice, unfiltered, not worrying about it, for a group of young lawyers, we'll call them 25 to 35 or 25 to 40, and you were to give one piece of advice to them, what would you give? Don't do it unless you absolutely love it. It is too hard, too exhausting, too consuming, and it's not worth spending so many hours of your life doing something you don't absolutely love. You got to love it. It's got to be like breathing to you. I really believe that. That's how deeply ingrained it has to be in your soul, in your being. And then it's the most profoundly rewarding thing. But if you don't love it, and I have sat many lawyers down in my office and said, you don't love it. It is not worth the price you're paying. It's just not a good price to pay for something that isn't meaningful enough to you. You got to love it. 
What advice would you give to a second group of lawyers? These are lawyers who have established themselves, much like yourself. They have a comfort level with their career and their skills, but they still are healthy. They plan on doing it for a long time. They have time for a second half of the book. What advice would you give to them? Don't be complacent. Challenge yourself. Take yourself out of your comfort zone because the world, the legal world is broad and wide and varied. And so don't limit yourself. The minute you get comfortable, you not only get bored, but you also become complacent and cynical. And that does not make you a good lawyer. The Pro Bono Inmate Appeals Program. Tell me about that. So that program was started when I was working with Eddie and my colleague then, Allison Wheeler, was getting these calls from a person that had an appeal. It was a significant appeal. He was unrepresented and he would call in some days and be completely lucid and other days completely florid. Obviously, he had mental health issues and he did not have a lawyer and he would call her for advice. And so we were sitting in her office. I was probably sitting on the floor as we usually did at the end of the day. And she said, you know, it's really crazy. You can get free representation to go to provincial court, but you can have a murder appeal and be unrepresented. It makes no sense. And so I said, well, why don't we do that? Why don't we have duty counsel for appellate accused? And so we went to Mark Rosenberg, who was then at the Court of Appeal and said, would you consider letting us do this pilot project? The Court of Appeal said, fine, we'll give you a shot. So Allison and I went up to do the inmate appeals and it was very successful. It was very successful not because of the win ratio. It was very successful because you had the most marginalized people for the first time, like having someone speak to them and listen to them and translate what they wanted to say and also fight for them. So it was very meaningful to the clients and helpful to the court because the court didn't have to be as nervous that they got everything and heard everything because there was a lawyer there assisting. And so that program, which started very simply, ultimately, it's now well over 15 years in practice, was established. It's all on a volunteer basis. We have the most incredible senior appellate counsel who do this for free, and they represent unrepresented appellants. So it's a really incredible program, and we work very closely with the prosecutors and very closely with the court in being able to make that happen. Well, Marie, I really appreciate your time with me. I appreciate your uh, vulnerability in your book and transparency and the truth that you speak into the world. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Dave. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Episodes drop on Thursdays. Subscribe now to catch every discussion. Thank you for listening.